Warning! This week's story contains disturbing images and themes of sex and psychological abuse. This ain't one for the kids. Escape Pod Episode 218 Today's story Octocotta Anamalum by Caitlin R. Kieran. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have a story this week by Caitlin R. Kiernan that's short and, well, I was going to say short and sweet, but this is a Caitlin R. Kiernan story, so sweetness is, at best, relative. That said, we present Ode to Catan Amano by Caitlin R. Kiernan. I'll explain who Catan Amano is after the story. Ms. Kiernan lives in Providence, Rhode Island, and is an eminent paleontologist, perhaps best known by her fans for her paper Stratigraphic Distribution and Habitat Segregation of Mosasaurs in the Upper Cretaceous of Western and Central Alabama, in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology in 2002. Or you might know her as one of the leading names in modern dark fantasy. She's published scores of short stories, numerous comic books, including the Dreaming series spun off from Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and several novels. Her latest is The Red Tree, available now from Rock. This story first appeared in her collection Frog Toes and Tentacles, published by Subterranean Press. The story is read for us by my favorite guitar-playing superheroine, Kim the Comic Book Goddess. She's the force behind the podcasts Geek Pantheon and Your Moment of Kim, and you can also find her everywhere else in the fiction potosphere, because it's inevitable that once anyone hears Kim read a story or voice a character, they draft her for their podcast. You can find everything she's up to at comicbookgoddess.com. So be a doll and cuddle up beside me. It's story time. Ode to Catan Amamu by Caitlin R. Kiernan No one hears when I ease the heavy steel door shut behind me. All the ears in the darkened workshop... All those hundreds and hundreds of years, but still no one hears a thing. And I stand there for a while, as unmoving as they, not exactly frightened, and not exactly uncertain if I should see this through. I think I stand there in reverence. I believe that's the word that people use for what I feel in that moment, standing there alone alone with that assembled crowd. I can hear a clock ticking somewhere in the room, counting off small bits of eternity. I can hear cars and trucks down on the street below. I can hear people on the sidewalk outside the building. But there is a silence nonetheless. I imagine it is an expectant silence, that they are all waiting to see what I'll do next. And I realize that I'm waiting to learn the very same thing. What will I do next? I remember the small flashlight clipped to my keychain, and I thumb its on-off switch, then shine the narrow white beam about the cavernous room. Their painted faces stare back at me. It's almost disconcerting, almost uncanny. And it occurs to me that, 
to some others, there would no doubt be a sort of horror at finding themselves standing in the dark among these countless dolls, puppets, the marionettes, mannequins, maquettes, life casts, death masks, all these facsimiles of humanity, grotesque and beautiful and absurd likenesses shaped from clay and plasticine, wood and paper mache. I take a deep breath. The room smells like work, like creation. Wood shavings, latex, acrylics and oils, sawdust, linseed and turpentine, acetone, alginate and silicone compounds, dust and oil. I never imagined there would be so many competing smells. Perhaps because the object of my concern has seemed always so visual and tactile that I've neglected that sense. But now I understand that these odors are an essential aspect of this place. They are the birthing smells, and the dying smells, too, and I should have anticipated them. I take three steps, coming to a long table or workbench. There are jars with glass eyes mounted on metal rods, green, brown, hazel, crimson, and tools, most of which I recognize but don't know the names for. There's part of a human skeleton, a shoulder and left arm dangling on a metal armature. There's a cat's skeleton, too. There are clamps and spools of wire, a cardboard box filled with springs, calipers, and tubes of glue. And I know that I'm being distracted, that none of this is what I've come here to see, what I've broken in to see, and I remind myself that I may be discovered at any moment, especially with the flashlight, and I should make better use of the time I have. It's not the mere craft that's brought me here. And I check my watch. Twelve minutes past two in the morning. I have half an hour before security checks this floor again, if the schedules can be trusted. I suspect that trespassers, trespassers who would be mistaken for thieves, cannot trust schedules or much of anything else. You won't reconsider this, you asked me, just a couple of hours ago, and I almost didn't answer. I almost left without bothering to say that I would not. I wish you would come with me, I said. That's stupid, you said. Two would be even more likely to be discovered than would one. With two, one can be a lookout, I suggested. You know how you sound? You sound like a child playing cops and robbers. Besides, why would I want to waste my evening being your lookout? We could take turns. You lit a cigarette and switched on the television. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Do what you want. But don't call me to bail you out. I step past the table, past a rack supporting an assortment of Japanese-style bonraku puppets, moon-faced geishas, two gold and red robe samurai, a fanged demon with green skin and black eyes like pools of gloss. There's another table, this one crowded by the legs, arms, and torsos of several dismantled department store mannequins. None have heads, and there is not a head anywhere on the table.
It's ghoulish, you said, but that was last night. It's an unhealthy preoccupation. It's something that we ought to speak with Dr. Bolan about. I said something about irony, something that made you angry. But then we fucked anyway. And here she is, the one I have come for, here on a pedestal, surrounded by a motley entourage of angels and Greek heroines, an old man seated before a miniature typewriter, a beautiful bronze woman with the horns of an antelope. But the bronze woman is not half so beautiful as the one the sculptor has named Sanctuary. I whisper her name aloud. Sanctuary. There is a flutter in my belly, and another flutter between my legs, and I want to sit down, want to kneel, but I only stand there staring at her. I could stop you from going, you said to me last night. It's within my rights. I could stop you. Yes, I replied. You could. You could do that. I should, you said, taking off your clothes, undressing in front of the mirror and watching my reflection. Is that what I am to you? I asked. Fuck you. That was a shitty thing to say. Was it? I'm not so sure. I first saw a sanctuary during an exhibition of dolls and puppetry at MoMA, and then I bought a book with two photographs of her inside. When you threw the book out, I bought another copy and hid it where I knew you'd never think to look. And now I am standing here in front of her, again. And this time there is no museum glass barrier between us. I could touch her now. I could raise my hand and place it gently against her Dresden blue forehead. She watches me, neither encouraging nor discouraging, merely waiting for whatever it is that I'll decide. Sanctuary's own arms are held close to her body, her exquisite hands with their nails the color of altar candles. Her left hand is clenched into something just short of a fist. It's the truth, you said, sitting down on the bed, and you looked at me over your shoulder. It's not something I enjoy pointing out, but it's the truth anyway. I'm your property, I said, and began unbuttoning my blouse. I'm only a slave. I never said that. You know damn well that I've never thought of you that way. The sculptor has dressed her in delicate folds of silk damask, a silver sash, a gathered long skirt of some metallic fabric decorated with the iridescent shells of tiny snails, garments borrowed from some imaginary nationality. There are definite hints of Asian and African influences, but the ultimate effect is something novel, something that would never have existed had the artist not willed it into being. I shine the flashlight across her face, and the light picks out the finest details, her minute eyelashes, creases at the corners of her mouth, a purple scar on her blue cheek. You treat it like some fucking idol, you said, once I'd undressed and stood naked in front of you. Is that what she's become? Your Virgin Mary, a goddamn plaster saint for you to fawn over and pray to? Is she going to answer your prayers? She is only a doll, 
I said, as you roughly peeled back the flaps of artificial flesh concealing my ventral data ports. You plugged in the first cable, just above my navel. You've always loved that joke, that I have a navel. The artifice of history, you said once. There was a dull whir and a click as the cable screwed itself firmly into place, a centimeter beneath my skin, and I closed my eyes, as if that would keep me from seeing the images waiting for me only a little farther along. Sanctuary's face is turned upwards very slightly, her gray eyes fixed on some point behind and far above my head. I don't turn to see, perhaps because I'm afraid that I would see. When all the black cables were in place, the last one plugged into the socket between my breasts, and you'd jacked me into the big sub-processor stashed beneath our bed. You lay back in the sheets and told me to take off my face. You'd only ever done that once before. The same night that you threw the first book out. So I understood why you were doing it. Does humiliating me make me more yours? I asked. Is that the way it seems to you? Something like that, you said and smiled. Come on, hurry it up. Don't take all goddamn night about it. Show me what's under there. I would ask permission, I tell Sanctuary. And I would, if I thought she could answer me. Touching her without some encouragement or consent feels like a violation. But I do touch her. That's why I've come here. That's why I paid an intern more than $200 for the access codes to the first floor and the elevator. My fingertips brush the hem of her skirt, hesitating a moment before they slip underneath the fabric. Her expression does not change. Her eyes are still staring towards heaven. I don't want to, I told you. I know that, but you will do it. There's a sort of petticoat beneath her skirt, soft cotton like a second line of defense, and I pause. I might have heard a sound out in the hallway, but I'm not sure. I listen for a minute, two, three, but the sound isn't repeated. No one's out there. I tell myself, don't be afraid. You won't get a second chance. My fingers wander into the darkness past the petticoat, and I find her legs. I find that she has legs. It was always a possibility that she wouldn't. But there they are, not unlike my navel, something superfluous that the artist felt compelled to include. Something sanctuary would not have been complete without. She's even wearing stockings. They feel like nylon. Take it off, you said again, and I pressed the release tab beneath my chin, and there was a faint hydraulic whine before it popped free. I handed it to you, because I knew that's what you wanted. You laughed and held it up in front of your own face like a carnival masquerade. 
your eyes peering back at me through the holes made for my eyes. <laughs> what do you think? You asked and laughed again. I think you're a bitch, I replied, and that only made you laugh louder. You laid my face aside then and strapped on the dildo you brought home from Amsterdam last year, the one built by the same company that made me. And you fucked me while the cables streamed images of murder and war and slow death, slaughterhouse floors slick with blood and a young man masturbating while he writhes inside a scatter of rusted metal and broken glass. I did not watch, but I did see it all, superimposed over you. And they can survive treatment that would kill live actors. When I first saw them in my boyhood, nothing delighted me more than when all the puppets went up in a balloon and presently dropped from the skies with an appalling crash on the floor. I found that in a book by George Bernard Shaw. They can survive treatment that would kill live actors. Tell me to stop, I say, but Sanctuary doesn't reply, and she does not look at me. My fingers move past her perfect calves, past her knees, finding her thighs. Please, tell me to stop, I say again, almost begging now, as if I believe that she can answer me. Hell, go if that's what you want. You told me just before I left our apartment to take the subway down to Chinatown. If it'll get this out of your system... Do it. I'm sick to fucking death of hearing about the goddamn doll. And if they catch you, no one's gonna ask twice if I request a memory wipe. Maybe you ought to think about that. And I did. I thought about that all the way to the old building with the sculptor's studio. It's okay, I tell Sanctuary. I can hear you anyway. You don't have to speak for me to hear and I slip my hand out from beneath her skirt. She doesn't look relieved or grateful or frightened that I might change my mind. She only looks the way that the sculptor has built her to look. I stand there for another 10 or 15 minutes, listening to the ticking clock and the traffic down on the street, alone in the company of Sanctuary and the Bronze Woman, the man with the typewriter, and the angel with its broad eggshell wings. And then I touch Sanctuary's blue face one last time, one last time to sustain me forever, and leave the workshop as silently as I came in. The puppet was meant to turn into a monster, but an unsummoned monster can appear, unless the artist is careful. Elizabeth King, 1999. <laughs> And that was our story. Katan Amano was a Japanese artist who made dolls. Very detailed, very beautiful, very sinister dolls. You can find some of her work online. It's difficult for me to describe exactly what makes the photographs so disturbing. As I was researching this outro, I got deeply sidetracked by the discovery of a whole creepy doll subculture. 
There's a solid community of people whose obsession is dolls that give you a weird feeling in your spine. Amano's work in particular tends to be surreal and lavishly costumed, with shining eyes and wasted faces. I've spent too much time now analyzing the expressions of these dolls. I think I know what they're trying to say to me. At a first glance, I had a whole blithe paragraph or two come to mind about how some art can freak us out by reminding us that innocence is a myth, that we as adults rely on the illusion that children and childlike things are pure and virtuous to justify defending our children against the world's savagery, ignoring the savagery of the children themselves. But then I looked at Amano's dolls some more, and I think there's something deeper than that going on. These dolls look like they know something. They look like they've got to that knowledge the hard way. I know the more I try to pin that down, the less sense I'll make. So I'll stop there and just say that, as an ode, this story works. Oh, and uh, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, we hope you'll tell a friend or blog about us. If you really liked it, please help us support our authors by clicking on the PayPal link on our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our sister podcasts, Podcastle for Fantasy and Pseudopod for Horror, both at their .org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. Our special closing music... Come on. You know I have to do this. It must be Creepy Doll by Jonathan Colton. You can find more of Colton's music at jonathancolton.com. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from British idealist philosopher Francis Herbert Bradley. He said, quote, We say that a girl with her doll anticipates the mother. It is more true, perhaps, that most mothers are still but children with playthings. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. At the top of a hill There's a house where no one lives So you take a big bag of your big city money there And buy it But at night when the house is dark And you're all alone There's a noise upstairs At the top of the stairs There's a door and you take a deep breath And try it And the flashlight shows you something the door There's a tattered dress and a feeling you have felt somewhere before
Too late, you see the one inside the box is you. 